It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are here, of course, all the way through the week from 10 until 1, bringing you as much free speech as we are allowed to. Uh, That's a joke, by the way. I don't mean we're not allowed to before people start jumping all over me. Yes, of course, we're going to be championing free speech. We're going to do that in the presence of Francis Hall this morning, a barrister who's here with me, who's got some great thoughts on the Thought Police and some great thoughts as well uh, on how we can protect some freedoms which some would like to see eroded. Uh, Peter Hitchens is going to be along as well. He's going to be talking about the education system in this country. We've talked about it before with him. Uh, he's very, very interested in a documentary that's going out a little bit later on. He'll also uh, be addressing the Julian Assange issue, because I believe this is the week uh, where Priti Patel has to make a decision about what to do uh, and whether she has to deport him to the United States of America, whether she chooses not to. Boris Johnson is over in Belfast. He's going to rip up Article 16, so we are told, uh, because he says the EU is not really cooperating. Well, we could have told him that about a year ago, or maybe even two years ago, they should have ripped it up a lot sooner than they are now. But we'll talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, coming up as well. The biggest shock story of the morning, though, uh, is a posting uh, who has been seen on video kicking a dog across a driveway. It's one of the most cruel and ghastly things you'll ever see. We'll play you that video a little bit later on, uh, because this man is uh, like... Kurt Zuma was about to be vilified by the general public because if there's one thing that British people don't like it's people who are cruel to animals and I don't care what anybody says about how postmen have to put up with dogs barking at them all the time there is no excuse for kicking a dog across a driveway it's that simple 0344 499 1000 lots more going on uh, we'll be talking about the man that threw eggs at the statue of Margaret Thatcher Harry Miller uh, is going to be here as well and we'll be talking to Victoria Hewson and John Caldwell who is of course an entrepreneur and who like me believes that the working from home problem uh, is going to wreck the economy. So, uh, lots to get into, lots to get your teeth around, and of course, we'll be taking your calls. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's get to it. Time to say a very good morning to Francis Hall. Francis, welcome to the studio. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for coming in. I haven't seen you, I don't think, since that party we went to, which was <laughs> so unusual that nobody yes. really quite knew what to do because we were suddenly all invited to a party in the midst of what was the first sort of lifting of the lockdown restrictions, wasn't it? And uh, we all kind of stood around for a while going, 
What do we do now? <laughs> We're actually meeting people. Very good. Anyway, listen, there's loads to talk about, so let's get straight to it. You've written a paper um, which is, is very, very detailed and, and quite lengthy, so I can't promise the, to you that I've read all of it, but I still had a quick skim through it this morning, and you've basically addressed a whole series of things from Ofcom to the police. Shall we concentrate on the police? Because the yep. Times this morning has got, you are not the thought police. Top officers are being told by a new watchdog, the new chief inspector of the constabulary, because the police are seemingly very confused in this country, aren't they? Well, in fact, you mentioned you were talking to Harry Miller later on, yeah. and Harry Miller brought a case to the High Court and won there, and won even more convincingly in the Court of Appeal, yes. about the what was called the, the College of Policing's operational guidance on what was all called in an Orwellian fashion, yes. non-crime hate incidents, yes. i.e., police investigating matters that are not crimes uh, and recording those crimes uh, or non-hate non-crimes as they actually are and Harry Miller had been speaking out very assertively about the hot topic of trans rights which causes an enormous amount of um, vituperation and hot air on on all sides um, and very vicious attacks on anyone who dares speak about it probably to be fair on on either side mm. um he was inve- he was investigated he was interviewed um no allegation was made that he committed an offence it was recorded and he took the police to court um sued them on a, on an individual basis about his case and mm. also took on the um lawfulness judicially reviewed that is to say the lawfulness of the college of policing's guidance um one on the first issue in the high court and one on both issues in the court of appeal um, so that was a very welcome, and there have been another um, a number of other judgments, including in the full start. I must admit, it came as a bit of a surprise to, to many of us that he won, because, I mean, the current climate is such that you wouldn't think he would have done. The climate is, but fortunately the judges have been rather good on this issue, actually, yeah. I think. Um, uh, Mr Justice Chowdhury, in the first full starter case, which was about the, the parameters of um, free uh, the, the 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 sorry the protected characteristic of philosophical belief how far that extended mm. and found that it certainly could extend to people who were gender critical who had a, had a view about um, biological sex being unchangeable mm. and the essential provision of safe spaces for women in particular and women's only sports um, for biological right. women and so on. Um, so, yes, there have been some good decisions by the courts yes. on freedom of speech. And in all, all of those kinds of areas, because there are so many of them, where the government, um, either of this country, and I say this country meaning um, England rather than mm. Britain, because, of course, in Scotland they sometimes have they do different things, they've got a different legal system. Mm. If a government starts to legislate for this kind of stuff, you know, how dangerous is that? Because it then means that the government is effectively, like we're being told about this kind of harms bill that's going mm. through, online harms. You know, who's going to judge what that harm is? Will that be left to judges? Will it be left to prosecutors? Mm. Will it be left to the CPS? How will it work? Well, firstly, the government's approach is, frankly, schizophrenic. Yeah. On the one hand, it um, has said that it wants to enhance the right to freedom of speech in the British Bill of Rights, which is another bill going through Parliament reforming the Human Rights Act. And um, it has made a big um, uh, stand about academic freedom, which is welcome. But on the other hand, as you say, it's introducing the online, now called the Online Safety Bill, which is is in itself, I think, instructive. The idea that one has to protect people's safety through 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 protecting them, as it is said, from speech and from ideas that they find unwelcome. Uh, That in itself is is a dangerous idea. Um, and, and I think the, 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 the danger is in that case that the first port of call will be 
the um, companies themselves, which yes. are looking at Ofcom, which is the second stage, uh, which will be the regulator. And we know, and you know very well, because you have to abide by their guidelines, that Ofcom for the last two years has been essentially muffling mm. the debate about lockdowns yeah. on the grounds that any speech, uh, any um, speech against um, public health guidance, yeah. which are, is an essential democratic subject, whatever you think about lockdowns. I mean, they've been trying to do that with some success because they had more success with people who were willing to go along with that, less success with those of us who weren't. Yes, you know? yes, I know. Because I don't know of anyone who's been challenged on it uh, and told you shouldn't have said that. I mean, we, funnily enough, as a, as a station, were more penalised by YouTube than we were yeah. by Ofcom. Yeah, that's that's true. But that also shows the chilling effect on companies and the BBC and Sky, perhaps the BBC and Sky are using this as an excuse and they, and they don't want to have proper yeah. debate about lockdown. To be fair, I think they did a very good job over Brexit um, where there was no political party that had a particular view against um, the, in favour of leaving the European Union. And I think the BBC and Sky did a pretty good job on that. But on lockdowns, they've been absolutely horrendous. Mm. And there's been very, very little debate on something which is, these regulations, totally unprecedented. Yeah. Although there will be people um, who will pick you up on that and say, well, hang on a minute. I mean, the BBC, particularly on the, uh, even if you start on the night uh, of, the, of, of the Brexit rally in, in Parliament Square and go yeah. backwards, you know, they did tend to try to paint people who wanted Brexit as kind of, you know, uh, shall we say, less than uh, intelligent. They tried to make out they were kind of racist bigots. You know, they must be mad right wingers, all that sort of thing. I think you can pick you can pick me up on that bit, but not on the second bit. They okay. were far, far worse on lockdown. I think. Far, oh no, far I don't disagree with that. On that, I don't that's disagree my with that. I'm giving them no quarter at all. I'm saying <laughs> yes, they'll be hopeless on it on all on all <laughs> counts. Let's talk a bit about a couple of things that happened at the weekend. Two stories that, that we will be talking about throughout the course of the show today. At Wembley Stadium, the FA Cup final was yeah. held. Lots of people were mm. absolutely outraged that Liverpool fans mm. booed um, Prince William and booed the national anthem. I mean, anyone who knows anything about Liverpool Football Club will know that that is not particularly surprising. I don't really care if they do it. I don't think it's a particularly polite thing to do, mm. um, but they should absolutely have the right to do it, shouldn't they? Well, yes, of course. I, I think it's Personally, I think that's pretty deplorable and, and totally it is. unnecessary. But of course, of course, of course, they should have the right. But I mean, to people it. in Liverpool who support Liverpool Football Club, and of course, we've been given this, we've been fed this stuff that oh, it's a very small proportion of Liverpool fan base. Well, it isn't actually because many people in Liverpool consider themselves to be Liverpudlian first, mm. and 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 you know, national their nationality comes second to that. And yes, some of them don't I, even it, think of themselves as British. My recollection is that Liverpool was the Protestant club in the old days and Everton was the Catholic club, but maybe I've got that the wrong way around no, I think because that's there's right. a sectarian divide. So I think, I think in the right. old days... It doesn't make any sense it, on that I basis. think now it's probably... It's not like Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow no. Rangers. I think it's now moved on very significantly, as we've seen by that. Yes. But I think in the old days, you'd expect the opposite, perhaps from Liverpool, yes. not from I mean, Everton. there were others yesterday who were taking it back to Thatcher and saying, oh, well, they hate Thatcher, therefore they hate the monarchy. Like and you're kind of that. going, well, it's a bit of a leap. But the other story could Concerned statue, a guy throwing eggs at the yeah. Margaret Thatcher statue. Now the law covers that. Yes, it, it absolutely. So he's does. already breached something yes. by doing that. Um, again, I wouldn't say you need to protect his freedom to do that because his freedom to do that is not in question, is it? His freedom to protest is not in question. In fact, that raises another issue, which is the um, the judge's directions, which are being challenged in the Court of Appeal. Um, about the um, Bristol removal of the course of yes. the statue, where the judge suggested that it could be lawful, a lawful means of protest yeah. to dim destroy 
property um, and throwing eggs at a statue and causing it to expenditure to be used in in um, cleaning it up is an offence of criminal damage. Yeah, right. uh, so even though it's not permanent, it's an offence of criminal damage. It's, even if it's though it's not paint or anything like that. Right. Um, and not my take on that is that um, the right to protest is extraordinarily important, and I've been louder than most people, vast majority of lawyers, in protesting for that over the last two years. Right. It was unprecedentedly. It was removed entirely at certain points, but. I do think that has limits. It has to have limits. And I think that, that it, it, it probably should be a hard rule that if you are committing criminal damage, and not negligently, but recklessly mm. or deliberately or, or intentionally, then yes. that should be an offence. Yeah, I think of it should, in the same way that we've been going to and froing with these Justice of Oil protesters and the Extinction Rebellion mm. lot who claim they're going to put millions of people out on the street. Um, you know, their type of protest has kind of superseded what the existing law is. So I'm quite happy with that law being targeted specifically at them to say, look, if you're going to continually uh, repeat offend in the same way which causes great disruption to the daily life of people uh, you know on a regular basis then we have to do something else and that brings you, brings us to the other point which is that i think the current laws are absolutely satisfactory do i do not think there's another there's need for this new bill about protest um it may be there's always there's always improvement that one can do for the law but i think you look first you should look first claire, claire fox was talking about this yesterday mm. she's absolutely right um, you should first look to see whether or not the law is being properly enforced. And I've gone walked across Waterloo Bridge before a few years ago and looked at the police doing absolutely nothing, looking on, uh, and at other times they were dancing and skateboarding yeah. with the protesters totally inappropriately. Of course they could have removed Extinction Rebellion from Waterloo Bridge. It was causing enormous carnage, huge economic damage to the country, um, what, to the city when, when you block mm. a major artery like that. It yeah. should absolutely not happen, and the police absolutely have sufficient powers to remove move them now and they did then and why didn't they that's another problem with the police perhaps yeah. they were looking too closely at tweets and not enough at public order and keeping the city moving yes i think that's right i think a lot of people are guilty of that a lot of people think that the world exists only on twitter and if it did it would be a pretty awful place but luck yeah. luckily there are many people who actually are either not on it or pay very little attention to it but francis stay with us because we've got to talk about a great many other yeah. things i want to get into uh, this, the keir starmer scenarios a fascinating uh, couple of things pointed out over the weekend by dan hodges who appears on this show from time to time um, about the issue of integrity but with francis we'll be more interested in the issue of the law uh, and what happens with those particular laws uh, which have been handed out I mean, all these fines being handed out penalty notices is it criminality? Is it not criminality? We'll take your calls as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots to do. Francis Hall is here with us, Barrister. Um, I, don't, I don't suppose it's right to ask you what you're working on at the moment. Is that something that's a bit like being a, a sort of a spy, isn't it? You can't always reveal what you're well, doing. They're, they're public cases. I've got a mix of judicial reviews and right. court of protection okay. cases. Let's things. talk a little bit about the whole sort of party gate, beer gate scenario, yeah. because it's all, as a political kind of football, it's mm. sort of ridiculous and mad. And, and we, uh, you and I, I think, both agree that what we should be holding the government to account yeah. about is the lockdown and, and some of the measures that they brought in and why we're now suffering as mm. a result of all of that and mm. why they gave so much money uh, to people who were clearly fraudsters. I mean, there's so many serious questions, but the media seems obsessed with, you mm. know, whether or not Keir Starmer had, uh, should have had a £200 worth of curry in Durham, whether Boris Johnson, mm. you know, should have been given a penalty charge notice. Mm. I mean, it's a kind of a weird place to find ourselves in, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
Um, I, I commented the other day, I got a lot of flack from my colleagues in the profession for saying that Keir Storm had undermined the presumption of innocence mm. by promising to resign on, behave, on receiving a fixed penalty note. I quite like to actually clarify exactly okay. why I said that. Right. And the reason I said it is because a fixed penalty notice is a decision by a police officer that he considers that that person is guilty of an offence. That is only, essentially, that is only an allegation. It's the beginning of a criminal process. Yeah. That person has the right to challenge that, not to challenge it, just simply to refuse to take it. And then the police have a choice, prosecute or not prosecute. If they prosecute, that person can defend himself and put before the court. Now, Keir Starmer, as an ex-DPP, you would think has come to a considered opinion as to whether or not he's guilty or innocent. He's concluded that he is innocent. Amazing, if, that isn't it? Well, amazing, but but no, but that's a that's a fair point. So for him, this is this is why I said that. So for Keir Starmer to have decided that, he should be saying, well, if I am accused, of course I I will not accept a fixed penalty notice because I'm not guilty, right. and I will not give the police the right to determine whether or not I am a, have to resign because I am offered a fixed penalty notice. That puts pressure. I do think it puts pressure on the constabulary. Obviously, every constabulary when they decide on whether somebody's prosecute and particularly when they're in the public eye could have a particular influence but if you're saying not just if you are convicted not just if you're charged but you will actually resign just if you're offered a yes. fixed notice for a finable only offence yeah. I don't think that's a very appropriate well that's him, his but, decision, but, but, that, but he has put himself in that place you know yes. rather unwisely in my view because what he except for what for what he has also done he's left himself a loophole which is the same loophole that Nicholas Sturgeon used which was the police may find that you breached the law However, they will take no further action, in which case he allowed them to continue in his job, isn't he? Yeah, well, he has. But again, the police will give an opinion only as to whether he's breached the law. Yes. Um, and, and that's the point. And, I, and this is a wider point. This is why I raised that point as well, uh, and got so, uh, despite getting so much flack from my colleagues in the profession. The, the reason I raised that point is because the whole perambulator of the lockdown regulations have given police and hugely enhanced power. They're not one they didn't seek, to be fair to them. But the vast majority of people will think fixed penalty notice. I can. It's not a criminal record. I'll take that. Right. So it does give the police far too much power to determine whether or not somebody's committed um, an offence. And, and right. people are just accepting those fixed penalty notices, including huge um, penalties of ten thousand pounds. Right. When very often, when they when they refuse to accept that and insist that they're prosecuted, the police either drop those charges or they're fined considerably less. Yes, than well, there was one in Durham, wasn't there? There yeah. was a woman who was fined ten thousand pounds for having a funeral sort of, uh, yeah. wake, if you like, and it was later reduced to five hundred, yeah. which is still, to me, an awful lot more money than it should have been. But at what point do the police decide on these things? Because in most criminal cases, the police have to make a recommendation to the CPS, and the CPS decides who it is that's going to be prosecuted, right? So it's the police's kind of recommendation. It's not their choice normally, is it? My understanding is it's a police decision only and it doesn't go to the CPS unless the the person um, given the opportunity to have accept a fixed penalty notice. It's not technically a fine and that's actually an important difference um, because it's not a finding of a court. So it's not a crime in other words then until until you turn it down. It's the opinion of a a police officer that you've committed a crime. If you accept the fixed penalty notice you're not necessarily accepting that you've done it. You're just paying the penalty and having the right not to be prosecuted. And it doesn't for it. count as a criminal record. It doesn't count as a criminal record, which is why it's a very attractive option. I mean, I have to say, I, I've advised a number of people about these matters, and I, I'm not going to breach confidences when I say that one of the options always is that that 
you could just accept this and not have the risk yeah. of a criminal conviction. And right. that obviously weighs very heavily on lawyers advising clients and on clients um, and on individuals mm. deciding whether to accept Would it this. turn up on a CRB check? Do you it, know? It, it, that, that's, that's, that's something I, I wouldn't like to give an answer because I don't know the, the answer, but it's a concern. I think CRB checks are so widespread. I, I think the reality is that it's unlikely to be have any difference on, to safeguarding vulnerable adults or children. So it's probably No, probably but I mean, not, it might but, affect a decision that somebody makes. I mean, if you're if you're given, yeah. um, say, for example, you want to work in a, I don't know, a kindergarten or something like that, and, and you get a fixed penalty notice for, um, I don't know, speeding or a fixed penalty notice for um, having a big party, the people employing you or proposing to employ you might say, well, maybe this is not the kind of person we want. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I realise I'm I getting a bit into the, the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act, and um, there's there's certain the various regulatory factors that go into those decisions. But right. yes, I mean, CLB checks and um, safeguarding is another area that 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 affects the presumption of innocence, and it's very very difficult to um, remove. Uh, an allegation yeah. from that, even if court hasn't been asked to charge it, even sure. if somebody's not being charged at all. Right. Taking your barrister's hat off for a moment and putting your commentator's hat on, I'm going to ask <laughs> you a question about Keir Starmer. Now, he claims to be the man of great integrity, right? Over the weekend, Dan Hodges highlighted two interviews that he gave, one uh, in which he was asked about Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader. Uh, would he rate him as what kind of leader he was, you know, from one to ten? He said, no, I won't do that. He's a colleague and a friend. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm not playing that game. Next interview with the Jewish News, in which he has asked specifically, is he a friend of Jeremy Corbyn's? And he says no. So, as Dan Hodges points out, there's nothing wrong with being politically expedient, but don't make out that you've got a lot of integrity about yourself. I think if you accept a job in the shadow cabinet, you accept the form of collective responsibilities that the cabinet has, and you have to be very careful what you say. What Keir Starmer decided... For perhaps for political expedience reasons, perhaps not, is to accept a job in um, in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, and as a result, campaign for him to be elected prime minister. Yeah, and that's something Keir Starmer will have to live with. Yes, and perhaps should be questioned about more. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Final question on the legal front: uh, Rwanda and the mm. migrants you know mm. still yesterday we see loads and loads of people arriving on our shores completely illegally um, apparently without any kind of impediment whatsoever um, we're told now by the Prime Minister that 50 people are going to be nominated as those who are going to be sent out to Rwanda on planes we've already seen the problems they've had at deporting people to Jamaica and many of these people are serious criminals what chance do they have of success here? As I understand the Rwanda policy uh, which would, would be a change in the law if it happened it only applies to those who are actually found to be um, refugees. So it, it will not um, affect the short-term issue of smugglers. There was some suggestion it may be a deterrence, but it seemed um, that actually that was just wind. I think it wasn't. I, I don't it think was it was just the weather. I think, I think well, it was a deterrent not. initially right. when people thought, oh, mm. God, we could end up in Rwanda. But when they saw nothing was actually happening and nobody was actually going there, I think then they just started again. Yeah, I mean, I think there are serious questions to ask about whether it's an appropriate policy. But I also think that the focus has, I, I think that the, what one has to remember about um, both in the Mediterranean and in the English Channel, if you make, um, if you have few means of stopping um, immigrants, and they're not necessarily, they're asylum seekers, but they're not necessarily refugees, um, coming into the country, then you are encouraging people smugglers. And you also 
encouraging them to create smaller craft, put people on less, uh, on, 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 on even worse craft uh, and causing potentially even more deaths. Um, Admiral West, who was a security minister, um, under the Labour government, suggested very early in the Mediterranean crisis that there should be a blockade and that people should be returned back. And mm. the reason he said they should be returned back is obviously you always and must rescue people when they are in the sea and when they are in peril. And as an admiral, of course, he knows that. But at the same time, if you if you then transport them to where they are going, you're encouraging the people smugglers yeah. to do that. How and do you that, get around that? And that needs a lot of international cooperation. Yeah. It's a very difficult. It's a very difficult issue. It is. But it's Francis, we've got to stop. I'm sorry to. to silence you but that's the end uh, we're all done francis hall thank you very much indeed My this pleasure, is talk tv you. on your mobile on your wavelengths talk radio and talk tv welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk tv with you all the way through until one o'clock kevin o'sullivan is in for ian collins and then we've got jeremy kyle uh, julie hartley brewer back on tv later on uh, on the talk where we'll have much to talk about we spent a lot of the last uh, 15 minutes or so talking about this dreadful situation up in manchester where a postman appears uh, to kick a dog across a driveway i mean you might think that's a trivial thing to do but the poor little dog uh, hadn't done anything and i appreciate that postmen sometimes have a difficult job but you can't go around kicking innocent animals i'm afraid so people are getting quite rightly worked up about that oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand we had francis hall in here earlier talking about freedom of speech a fascinating document that he's written uh, in which he's going all the way through uh, from non-crime hate crimes to what Ofcom should be doing uh, to how the police should be operating fascinating stuff we'll be talking some more about that and of course the online harms bill as well uh, which is currently all going through parliament because who's going to decide what causes harm if it's not actually a hate crime some of these conversations make you wonder if you're living in cloud cuckoo land luckily we don't live in cloud cuckoo land because Peter Hitchens is here uh, to tell us that actually that's not our reality Peter very good morning to you good morning um, sometimes you do wonder, don't you, when you read various stories and you read way, the ways that people are kind of interpreting things, that, that the world that we live in is not exactly as it seems. Well, it's much worse than it seems. Yeah. So many things are, are done slice by slice. Mm. Uh, and this is the, the famous salami slice. They call it salami slicing, don't they? Uh, it was invented by the Hungarian communist leader, Matthias Rakashi. He ah. said, basically, if you, if you took away people's liberties uh, by thin slice by thin slice... And by the time they noticed, the whole mm. sausage would be gone. Yeah. But each slice was so small that there would never be a sufficient protest to stop you. Right. It, it still works. Mm. Uh, and that's what they do. The, the thing is either incomprehensible or it's tiny. And if you make a fuss about it, you say, what are you making a fuss about? This doesn't matter. Yeah, why does this bother you? It all you? totals up yeah. over 20 or 30 years to a very great attack, particularly on the, on the freedom of speech. Yeah. But all, all kinds of other freedoms as Although, well. Although, do you know, are we, are you sure we're not sort of looking back with rose-tinted spectacles? I mean, I was talking about this guy threw eggs at Margaret Thatcher's statue over the weekend in Grantham, which is a particularly ridiculous thing to do. But, you know, I remember the 70s. It was a pretty ghastly decade in terms of what you were able to do, never mind what you were allowed to do. You couldn't do much because we didn't have very much. Yes, but that's different from whether you can speak freely. Mm. And I am absolutely certain that speech was freer, that we, we you could say, say things in newspapers much more freely without fear of repercussions mm. then uh, than, than you can now. Mm. The, the press regulation was, was, was really just a tiny little cloud, no bigger than a man's hand. Mm. It's grown into an enormous menace now. Well, newspapers were far more powerful. Well, they, were, they were more powerful, but they were also more free. Yes. The ones, even the ones that weren't powerful 
they were much less restrained in what they said. Mm. Some people may say, and a lot of people do say, that it was a bad thing they were so unrestrained. Yeah. I personally think that... Uh, because you might, I mean, there might be people who would say, yes, that's fine if you were a newspaper columnist or that you, you were an editor, but if you were an, an individual, a member of the public, who was, say, picked on by a newspaper, you didn't have much freedom of speech, did you? Well, you still don't, I don't think. I mean, the, the individual still has very little power. But the, the other thing that's happened to individuals is that, particularly if you work in the public sector, your freedom to speak is hugely limited mm. in your workplace. Yeah. And that, that is where most people experience social interaction. Yes. And they're scared of being informed on for saying something which is incorrect. Right. And as a result, people do not speak as freely as they used to. Well, I, I, I was, doubt about it. I was reading a piece in The Times last week about the NHS now hiring some woman to teach people about microaggressions and how you must be very careful when asking people both either working at the NHS or as patients certain questions such as apparently where are you from which can be considered to be racist and I'm going well surely that's a question you ask somebody when you meet them as a part of a small talk isn't it? Well not anymore Where are you from? Me? I, I, I'm from the English uh, middle class <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, I thought you were from Oxford Well that's where I live. Yes. I was born in the middle of the Mediterranean. Were you? Yeah I was born in Malta. Were you? But at the time it was part of the empire. Oh okay. So um, the Maltese will have And how does that make you feel? Uh, it makes me feel I'm very glad that my father got me a, 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 a British birth certificate sometime in the 50s. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, you could be Maltese. Theresa May would probably have flung me out of the country. Well, you'd be flown to Rwanda. Well, I'm not Maltese. I asked him about this once. I said, yeah. no, because you're, you were a colonial baby. You have absolutely really? no rights to citizenship at all. See, people always make these arguments, don't they? Like, for example, I'm always saying that I'm Scottish, which I claim to be because both of my parents were Scottish. Both of them were born in Scotland. Uh, therefore, I qualify to play football for Scotland. Therefore, I am Scottish. My name is Scottish. It's amazing they haven't asked you to play, really, isn't it? Well, I mean, they, they're not that bad. They're pretty bad, but they're not quite as bad as that. But, but you know, some people have this obsession of, well, no, you, 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 you come from where you were born. Absolute rubbish. Well, Joanna Lumley was born in India. Well, quite, but I, there are a lot of us in my generation who were born in the last gasp mm. of empire right. who who can't say this is my native land. Yes. My native land is, is, is Malta. And do you have an affinity with a place like Malta? I feel a sense of familiarity when I go there, though I can't. I have no direct memory of it. I left it before I was two years old, but mm. uh, there, there is a strong feeling when I'm there as if I, when I first went back yeah. to look right. that I had been there before. Quite startling. Yeah, I mean, I a lot of it's very beautiful as well. It's, it's, yes, it's, I've it's not a been. startling. It's well, it's it's very. The Valletta Grand Harbour is one of the most magnificent mm. harbourscapes in the world, and a lot of the the, the, the interior is quite is quite fine as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, we'll come back to all of that. Let's talk about what you wrote about this weekend in the Mail on Sunday: uh, education yeah. uh, and one particular school and one particular. I'm going to say head to pander to those who would say headmistress is wrong. I think she calls herself she a She calls herself a headmistress, and yeah. the, the, the television programme which is coming out about her on ITV next Sunday evening is called Britain's Strictest Headmistress, yes. which you probably get into trouble for trying to I'm search, search for on the internet. Yes, I'm amazed they haven't it, changed that. It, it is, well, they, I think the, 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 the people have still got some sort of a sense of humour somewhere. But the, what it shows is this extraordinary school, which you set up against a lot of opposition, right. uh, where very old-fashioned ideas of discipline and, uh, and adult control uh, are maintained. And as a result, the, the children are safe from bullying and all yeah. the other horrible things that happen in many other schools. And the academic results aren't bad. It's not in, in any way a kind of elite school. It's up there in Wembley. It has yeah. a very straightforward intake. And you point out, and we're talking about Catherine Burble Singh for yeah. anyone who, who doesn't know. And you talk, and you talk about the look of the school as well, which is actually quite. It's a hideous it? office block yeah. because they, she tried to get a proper school, and various local authorities in London 
wouldn't let her have. Mm. So she ended up with this office block next to a railway line where right. they had to open the windows in summer because it's so hot and, and the, they had to shout to make right. themselves heard because of the clatter of the trains right. going by. You couldn't think of a worse site for a school, no. but she still makes it work. She does, because her main kind of tenant is that nobody uh, should be treated differently and that people should all be treated and held to the same standard and just because somebody might be poor. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Uh, or um, suffering in some way from, from, from some disability, they should still be held up uh, as, as somebody who shouldn't fail. It's not a favour to people to let them off, is a fundamental rule. Mm. Now, she makes this point. The, the, the tiger mothers who, who force their children to do their homework and don't let them take days off school for thin excuses and generally keep a hard eye on them, mm. They are often exactly the kind of people who will say, oh, well, you should be, when, when poor children are at school, oh, let them off, don't, don't be tough on them, let's right. not have strict discipline or, or hard marks or detention or things like mm. that. So they, they want a different standard for their own children for the standard they want for the children of the poor, which is actually deeply patronising mm. and totally wrong. And the point about Catherine Burblesing is she takes the opposite view. She says the children of the poor should have exactly the same mm. advantage of tough discipline and, and, and pressure on them to strive and do well that the children of the rich do. And yes. I can't see how you can object to that myself. I don't see how you can object to that, because we saw a bit of this last week, didn't we, when Lee Anderson got up in the House of Commons and talked about the food bank that he works with in, in uh, Nottinghamshire and how uh, he believes it's a good idea to teach people how to cook properly. And he was absolutely hounded to the ends of the earth, as if he had said, you know, we should be selling the poor's children off or something. Yeah, well, of course, the, the problem with these things is, 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 is then very much attention is then directed to who you are. Right. So if someone like me with a, with a plummy accent starts saying things like that, then he inevitably invites derision. The thing, yeah. again, about Catherine Burble's thing is she is herself a, a mixture of, uh, of, of racial minorities. Yes. Uh, she's utterly unprivileged, and she runs an utterly unprivileged school. So the general attack lines of the left against her, that you are a racist right. or that you are a privileged person defending privilege, simply bounce off because right. they're utterly untrue. So the, the, her left-wing detractors are, are really in a bit of a fix, and at the moment, they're going around complaining that some of the some of the uh, the quotations painted on the school wall are wrong. That's <laughs> the that best a, they can come up with as do. an attack on the school. It's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? Because it's I mean, I found it very ironic that last week's sort of two gladiators, if you like, of the modern political world were Lee Anderson, a Tory who grew up in a mining family in a very, very poor part of Nottinghamshire, and Lisa Nandy, who's uh, from the Labour Party, but who's a daughter of a millionaire uh, and has had a very privileged life. And so the situation has almost become reversed. Well, left-wing politics do tend to be the preserve of the privileged. Uh, they they just are, and there is a reason for this. Yeah, but there used to be sort of some substantial trade union types and working class types, but they've all gone. But now. this is what this is what new part it's the of Blairization. What, 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 what it, New Labour was like was about was introducing really really hard left uh, middle class uh, policies, and getting rid of the the proper old fashioned mm. Labour policies, which actually benefited the poor. So New Labour doesn't care about council housing. It doesn't care about nationalising things which need to be nationalised. It doesn't. It's got. It's it, fundamentally. It's a party about making a revolution. Yes. And if the poor suffer as a result of that, which of course they do very much in education, they do. They don't care. 
No, because in the end, they don't really meet or mix with those people, whereas actually there are still plenty of working-class Tories who do work for a living in blue-collar in blue collar jobs yeah. who have now voted for this particular government. Yeah, poor old them. They're going to find out the Conservative Party's been taken over <laughs> by the Blairites too. Yeah, I'm afraid there's not much hope out there for anybody. Well, it? I keep telling you. You do keep telling me. I mean, it does get We tedious. are all doomed. We are all doomed. You have to learn to enjoy it. But listen, I'm beginning to enjoy it, actually. Yep. I'm beginning to enjoy it a lot. Um, we're going to have a break for a second in a moment. But before we do that, Julian Assange this week, we yes. believe um, uh, it's getting close to the it's, wire, isn't I it? I think the decision has to be taken by the Home Secretary by, by the 18th, right. which is Wednesday, if I have my calendar right. Yes. Uh, I've urged people to write. Now, I put on my timeline on Twitter also an email address at the Home Office, which you can use. Again, please, if you're going to write to Pretty Patel, please write courteously mm. and briefly and concisely but do it soon mm. it would be terrible if uh, she decided to extradite him because she didn't think there was enough opposition to yes. it and because you didn't write because it is surprising how often politicians will change their minds if they do think there's opposition to well I've said often a lot of people don't like Pretty Patel yeah. and, 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 and there you are I, I quite understand why that is but here is an opportunity for, for this politician if she chooses to take it to completely transform the public perception of mm. her and one which she could take. I really don't see how any British person can be in favour of extraditing Julian Assange to the United States. Yeah. If you believe in, in, in British principles of liberty, uh, why would you do that? And, and this would be a, 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 very, a, a very major step upwards for her if she took that. So I think, as I say, courteous, brief, and do it quickly. And it's, it must be worth doing, and it must be better than doing nothing. Yes, because apparently tomorrow is the, is the final day, I think, for sort of defence submissions. Is that right? To the Home know. Office. Yeah. And I think there might be even some kind of a protest planned outside the Home Office tomorrow. Well, I hope that protest is a good mannered and, and uh, well ordered. They generally protest. are, aren't they? they? I think, I, again, but people must understand that if you want to influence decisions of this kind, then, then allowing yourself to be portrayed as, as, as noisy, raucous and rude does not help. No. Uh, Amnesty International, that used to work properly, was based so much on that. You, you, they asked you to write to these horrible dictators, write to them politely. Mm. It took an effort, but it often worked. Yes, interesting. Peter Hitchens is here with us um, until half past. If you've got any questions, by all means, fire them into us. You can tweet us at uh, TalkTV, at I-R-O-M-G. Uh, lots more to come. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the future of the monarchy uh, coming up after the Queen's speech last week made by Prince Charles, who uh, Peter and I, I think both agreed didn't look particularly comfortable doing it. 0344 499 uh, is the number to call. Uh, you can, of course, um, send us a text as well, 87222, uh, starting message with the word talk. More from Peter Hitchens after this. Talk radio. Accept no substitutes. Access all arguments. Shut up and listen. We're on your side. The home of common sense. Talk radio. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Peter Hitchens is here. We're chatting about many things. Um, I saw that you wrote about Prince Charles. I, I watched, obviously, in fact, it was on while we were here last Tuesday. Um, and he didn't look very comfortable, Prince Charles. And I thought to myself, for somebody who's been waiting all his life to do this, you'd think he'd be kind of a bit more ready. Well, the old joke is, I private eye constantly do these satires in which they suggest that he's longing desperately to become yeah. king. I'm not sure that he is, you know. Mm. I think he's probably noticed that if he becomes king, he'll have to shut up. Right. And he doesn't particularly want to. And he'll be under sure much more scrutiny. For heaven's sake, no man wishes for the death of his mother. It must be horrible sitting there thinking, well, this is coming. Right. And she's licensed discussion about it. 
by talking about the, the in the fullness of time. Yes, quite cleverly, I thought. Yeah. So you can now talk about it without feeling that you're you're doing something disrespectful. Right. But I don't like talking about about it actually. No. And I, I think it because must, actually it I don't be, like it thinking must, about it because it's, it's you can feel it's it's a darkness coming oh. on. Yes. Also, it will fundamentally affect the entire country because we've had the Queen oh. for such a long time. I think there will be a collective sort of reaction of grief. I don't maybe, maybe a delayed it. I don't predict. I think it will be a very huge convulsion. I think people are not don't really understand uh. just what a big moment it will be. Uh, I, I'm quite worried about it, actually. I think a lot of things will come into question which have been left alone yes. until now. And I, I think that it's it, it will also have a huge effect on what's left of the Commonwealth, particularly in Australia. Yeah. And a lot of that will come will come echoing back here as well. Uh, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was uh, if, if he was fretful about yeah. it. And why shouldn't he be? Because we are a very different. I mean, if you can imagine when the Queen was was crowned and the, the difference in this country now compared to what it was then. I was born when we still had a king. There you are. Exactly. So I mean, yeah. nobody questioned the kinds of things that people question now, which is probably it's yeah. good that what, they now you, do that. You can watch the coronation service; it's quite easy to get hold of. Yeah. What, just imagine it, how possible it would be to hold such a thing again. Mm. Now you couldn't do it. It's, no. The, 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 do you know it's the last coronation service? No other European monarchy has a coronation. Really? We are the last. Okay. It and, goes, and it we, goes back. And, a and thousand no other years. European country really has a royal family like. Well, this. they do, but they have a sort of inauguration. They don't have a, 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 a an enormous constitutional ceremony on that scale. It's a completely unique thing. There. No, but the individuals themselves are also more sort of casual, aren't they? They're not really considered. Yeah. They're not considered to be the head of state, which the Queen still is. Yeah, it's a bit with, but but I think in some some places more than others. But it's it is we we just are actually now pretty much unique in this. And yeah. How long can it survive? And I would I wish it could survive indefinitely and I, I actually have many arguments in favour of it but I, I don't think most people are that interested anymore. Well my main argument in favour of it is that I don't like what would come instead I don't really fancy, I never did fancy during the time when Princess Diana and all those conversations were being had by New Labour and Alistair Campbell and the People's Princess and all that I didn't really fancy the idea of President Blair. Or, or, or a number of other people whose names came up. No, it's but it's it's it, and it is the other thing is having a having a monarch keeps politicians out of mm. that very important sphere of ceremonial, uh, of ceremonial respect. And you don't have to love a prime minister, you don't have to respect no. a prime minister. Whereas the poor Americans, they have a head of state who's also also a politician, and they have to respect people like well, George, they say George they W. To... Bush. I'd burst if I had to. Respect well, they George say w. that you have to respect the office, don't they? Well, yes, but the person who occupies it can't be separated from it. Mm. And it, it, it just makes politics less free yeah. if you've got a head of state who's also the commander-in-chief. Right. If there was no monarch, would it be possible for Britain only simply to have a prime minister then? Or would there need to be another well, level? My theory for a long time has been the, the ideal arrangement in the modern world would, would be for us not to have a monarchy without a monarch. Right. You'd have a regent who was just handed out medals and things, who was, who was a nice retired admiral right. of a blameless character. Mm. Right. And, and, and the whole thing was just... Is there anybody to, like that left? Well, I'm sure there are people <laughs> like that, but, but not again, not for long. Right. As long as you kept people like Blair or Thatcher or Johnson or any of them out of, the, out of, out of standing and taking the salute on Horse Guards Parade yeah. or trooping the colour. He'd love that, I, I do, Well, I, that's, Blair would have loved it. Yeah. I, I, we really must keep them out of all that ceremonial bit, and they mustn't be commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Uh, and, and and also the, the other crucial thing is that it, 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 whether it ever came to anything, I don't know, but it was very important during the Nixon part of the of, of American history. Uh, people who were serving the president were serving the head of state. Right. And when he was doing illegal acts, which he was, who, yeah. do, who could they turn to? Right. Whereas in for this country, people in the civil service and the armed forces, they serve the queen, not mm. the government. Yes. 
and a police are supposedly sworn to uphold the law. They're not civil servants. So right. there is a there is a, a lawful way in which you can resist unlawful mm. orders and tyranny, which a monarchy provides yes. and which a republic doesn't necessarily provide. And you can look forward, I'm sure, to many prognostications from the Blairs and, and, and various others of this world who will have lots of ideas about what we could do instead. Well, the Blair people will always pretend to be keen on the monarchy. They say, no, yeah. I have absolutely, they haven't, we have no designs. So, you know, the Labour Party has discussed the monarchy once in its entire history. Mm. Not because it doesn't want to get rid of it, but because it doesn't want to draw attention to the fact no. that it wants to get rid of it. Well, I imagine Keir Starmer doesn't have a view yet until somebody tells him what it should be. Uh, I don't have much doubt about what Keir Starmer's <laughs> private view would be on that matter, but he wouldn't be fool enough to, to say it publicly. No, he wouldn't. Let's talk a little bit about NATO before we let you go, because quite significant, another significant moment, is it not, for... Uh, you know, Finland to, to to suggest that it wants to join us, and for Russia to say that they consider that to be a threat to their national security. Well, it's just, I mean, it is it, within what is it now? Slightly more than a century, Finland was actually part of the Russian Empire. Right. So to have it joining an alliance which is now fundamentally and openly anti-Russian, in a way that it, 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 the Russians always said it was, but mm. it, NATO would never admit it, must be a bit of a blow. Yeah. Uh, but the what is Russia's concern, and and why why should we make Russia more concerned? I think there is there are there have always been long ago in, in Germany before the First World War, and I think probably now in the United States, there are people who would quite like to see Russia broken up into three or four different countries. Yeah, uh, Russia knows about this, regards NATO as an offensive rather than a defensive alliance. The people who join it are they actually gaining any advantage? I'm not sure. I'm not sure they are, but I mean, I suppose NATO would say, well, the reason this is being done is because of what the Russians did in Ukraine. You can argue that, um, though I don't think Ukraine could conceivably have joined NATO before. I don't think it was ever, it was the, the foolish proposition was put forward by my favourite politician, George W. Bush, yeah. in 2008, I think it was. But it, almost everyone in Europe said, no, you can't do that, mm. and prevented it. Uh, it, it, it couldn't have happened. But Maybe, but I don't think I mean, Ukraine is just such an extraordinarily important piece of territory, which is important strategically. Yeah. It's not the Russians want a Ukrainian colony; it's because they don't want they don't want their enemies sitting on Ukrainian territory. Right. Uh, that's what's that about? So I, don't, that, I, don't I don't think there is a Russian. I don't think there is a Russian desire to, to invade Finland or the Baltic states or Poland or anything. I, because even if there were, they haven't, as, as has now been demonstrated beyond doubt, they haven't got the strength to do it. They haven't got the wherewithal. But no. so, are, are you saying that you think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is entirely about making sure that Ukraine doesn't join NATO? Yes, I think it's what basically what I've, I've, I've always thought, that it's a protection racket job. Right. Uh, that Ukraine and, and the Americans went too far in Ukraine for, from the Russians' point of view. So they said, right, we'll smash the place up. Right. Basically what and they're doing. What the, they're idea doing. That, the idea that Russia is intended to conquer Ukraine and take it over and rule it as a Russian province, I think, was wrong. And so much has been said about this invasion, which has, been, which has assumed things about it, yes. which I think are, 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 the, the force that the Russians put in there, and indeed their entire armed forces aren't big enough to no. conquer a country of that size, even if they wanted to. So in which they, case, do, they do want to, 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 do, to, to actually to, to do a lot of damage in Ukraine, which they yes, are doing. Which they are doing. So therefore, those who say they aren't achieving their objectives are actually wrong. They may be wrong. Mm. The point is, we don't actually know what their military objectives are. Right. Uh, and uh, I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding of the political objectives mm. as well. People who, who who desperately want to believe that Russia wants to reconquer its old its its, its old possessions uh, for, for for whatever political reasons. Yeah. It's something a lot of people want to believe. So they automatically think that's what they mean. Yes, I think there are some people in Russia who would like to, 
But anybody in Russia who knows the situation knows they haven't got the money and they haven't got the weapons or they haven't got the armed forces mm. to behave like that. No, quite. Fascinating stuff as ever. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Uh, at least uh, Ukraine won the Eurovision Song Contest, so that's the most important thing. Oh, but uh, we're out of time, uh, sadly. Uh, we'll have more. Uh, more of your calls, uh, more from all sorts of other interesting people as well. 0344 499 is the number. We've got some news headlines coming next on Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to um, Harry Miller, uh, who's now here with us. We'll come back to Ryan in the New Forest in a moment. Harry, um, a very, very good morning to you. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Mike. Now, listen, um, we've just had Francis Hoare here talking about how he's written a document, which I recommend that you have a look at. Uh, but he was quoting uh, your case earlier on and saying that, you know, uh, this idea on the front page of the Times today, that the police are now being told that you are, they are not the thought police, is quite a victory for you, isn't it? It's, fun- it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, we instinctively knew that this was this was wrong. Uh, the High Court and the Court of Appeal finally agreed that it was wrong. Um, the, the, the gentleman who's been uh, who's been appointed as the inspectorate, uh, he was in charge of the police service, uh, Merseyside Police, who took out that massive billboard that said being offensive is an offence. Well, yeah. of course it's not. Of course it's not an offence. We know that. You know that. He knows that. And what I think is going to happen now is that slowly, 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 individual police forces and chief constables are going to catch on that they cannot simply keep ignoring the College of, sorry, the, uh, the the Court of Appeal and the High Court. They need to get back and they have to get back to solving actual crimes. I mean, if you look at the report, uh, what is it? Something like one in 17 crimes are solved and it goes down, it's even less when it comes down to sexual crime. Mm. Um, burglary, theft, these sort of things. They're just, they're, they have no interest of the police, it seems, because the police are focused on the easy win of policing people's thoughts, policing people's tweets, policing people's opinions. And thank goodness, thank goodness, that eventually, after all this time, all the effort that I've put in, that Fair Cop have put in, that great people like Francis Hoare have put in, is finally paying off. Yes. And I was asking him as well about this business of these, uh, you know, sort of uh, fines that are being handed out by the police now uh, in Downing Street and very possibly in Durham, if that's what happens, and whether that fixed penalty notice is something that shows up on a CRB check. Because you've often said that people who don't know that they've been given uh, some kind of non-crime, hate crime uh, tick may find that that helps uh, helps people to find out more about them and it may may appear on their record yeah no that, that's absolutely right well of course the difference between um a fixed penalty notice and a non-crime hate incident is that a fixed penalty notice that ha- it, it's the penalty for being guilty of something that was unlawful a non-crime hate incident on the other hand goes nowhere near unlawfulness it's just the police deciding that you're a wrongan. Mm. They don't like who you are. It's a judgment on your character, not on your actions, as far as the police are concerned. And that is entirely wrong. And of course, when they re- when they the police release their ruling about your character arbitrarily to a potential employer, then we have, quite frankly, a Stasi. And the High Court judge likened the police to the Stasi, the Cheka, and the Gestapo, not because he was being hyperbolic not because he wanted um, a headline, but because he saw the direction of travel. Thankfully, we now have um, a very senior officer who has recognised this and is now refocusing uh, police forces, 
onto what they should have been doing all along, which is solving crime. Yeah, there's an old-fashioned idea for you. How will this affect, do you think, the policing of the Just Stop Oil protesters and the Extinction Rebellion crazies? Uh, well, we have a we have a, a, a problem of political policing. The yeah. police decide whether something is worthy of, of, of heavy handedness or whether it's worthy of a light touch. We have this problem of political policing. Now, again, uh, Mr. Cook has said that we have we have to have a police force that avoids all politics, not just politics with a large P, but politics, he says, with a small mm. P. In other words, if something looks political, it is polit- political. If it has a flag, if it has a slogan, if it has a campaign, if it has zealots who march in order to, 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 to change some aspects of law, then that is political. And the police can have no part whatsoever. The second there's a flag, the second there's a slogan, the police need to run a million miles from being associated yeah. with it. And what they need to do is approach every situation and deal with it without fear and without favour. Absolutely right. Harry, great to talk to you. Harry Miller, their former Metropolitan Police officer. We've got more coming up after this. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Ian Collins uh, not here today. Kevin O'Sullivan is in for him at one o'clock. Jeremy Carl in from four, of course. One of the things that's going on today, in addition uh, to that horrendous video of somebody kicking a dog across a driveway, which some of you seem to think is all fine and dandy and not a problem at all. I wouldn't like to be a dog in your household if you think kicking a dog around is a good way uh, to exercise yourself during the course of any given day. Absolutely extraordinary reaction from some people. Um, here's, uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to some of these actually in a minute um people seem to be taking exception to the fact that i think this guy has done something wrong i can't believe there are people in this world who are going to con- who are going to continue to support a postman who kicks a little dog about the size of a hamster across a driveway what's wrong with you for heaven's sake let's talk to victoria houston who's head of regulatory affairs at the iea that's the institute of economic affairs because boris johnson of course is heading over to belfast today he's heading over to northern ireland uh, with the view uh, to basically br- breach and break up the northern ireland protocol for many many months now uh, we've seen the european union doing absolutely nothing to try to move towards some kind of a benefit deal for both parties from the EU to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is supposed to be part of the United Kingdom at the moment. It isn't operating as though it's part of the United Kingdom. So let's find out uh, exactly what the impact of the protocol uh, may be and whether it justifies any kind of unilateral action from the UK's point of view. I mean, I think it does, Victoria. Very good afternoon to you. Um, Are you going to tell me that we're not justified to do this? Uh, No, I think that unfortunately the protocol as it was drafted is not working. The intention of the parties, it's all set out there in the protocol itself, in the recitals and in the wording that it was intended to protect the peace process, the Belfast Agreement, stability, have as little impact on the lives of the communities in, in Northern Ireland as possible. And of course, the EU also agreed that they would use their best endeavours to facilitate trade yeah. and respect Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market. None of that is working as intended. The economic effects in Northern Ireland have been quite bad so far. We are spending hundreds of millions of pounds of taxpayer money on trying to make it work. And um, to be honest, I think 
I think the UK government's current position that if the EU is not going to come back to the table to have meaningful discussions about changing the protocol, then I'm afraid we are going to have to take action. Yes, I think that's right, because I think they've had enough chances, have they not, the European Union? And I would say, uh, go a bit further than you and say there haven't really been a fair dealing in this situation, because at every, st- at every step of the, uh, of the conversation, they've tried to throw something in the way of it, haven't they? Well, they are very much sitting on the strict exact legal wording of the protocol, which in many senses, you know, they're entitled to do. The the legal obligations are what they are. Um, But that also very strongly cuts across, first of all, the overriding objectives of the protocol for peace and stability and, and so on. And also their duty to take best endeavors to facilitate trade uh, for the UK internal market. And it simply cannot be right to say, well, you signed up to it. So what if it's making everyone in Northern Ireland poorer? Uh, So what if all of the institutions of the Belfast Agreement have collapsed and we can't get power sharing back in in the Northern Ireland Assembly? That's what you agreed to, just suck it up. I, I just cannot accept that that can be a reasonable way forward. And to the extent that the EU has made some proposals, because they do acknowledge that it's you know, causing hardship and cost in Northern Ireland. They made some proposals in October last year, um, which unfortunately uh, would actually take us backwards and would make things worse because all of their proposals on some relatively half-hearted mitigations have preconditions attached to them that we fully implement the protocol, get rid of the grace periods, uh, you know, the things that are currently alleviating the burdens, we have to get rid of them mm. all before the EU will even consider, uh, you know, taking away some of the paperwork requirements. Right. Because technically speaking, the agreement itself doesn't have to be uh, ruled over by a sort of a third party, does it? Because it's an agreement that was made between two parties, effectively the EU and the UK. And so we don't have to go to some court of arbitration to ask permission to do this, do we? Well, there are uh, there, there are dispute settlement provisions in the Protocol. What the protocol is, is is part of the withdrawal agreement that formalised our leaving the EU as as a whole. This protocol just forms part of that. And in principle, I you know, there's there's no real problem with having an arbitration process. That's quite a useful thing to try and resolve um, disputes that parties to an international agreement might have. The, the problem with the dispute settlement under the withdrawal agreement and, and the protocol was, of course, Theresa May had negotiated us into such a corner, we ended up with really quite terrible terms Mm. there where the European Court of Justice gets the final say on matters to do with EU law and essentially the European Court of Justice and the European Commission have have direct jurisdiction in Northern Ireland uh, under the protocol. And those are really, really difficult constitutional issues. Unionists in Northern Ireland are furious. They see this as... um, you know, taking Northern Ireland out of the union Mm. without consent, which would be a a violation of the Belfast Agreement. Now, strictly, the courts have have found that that's not really the case, but it does definitely feel you can have sympathy for for their view that essentially they're being salami sliced out of the union bit by bit by taking away trade policy and having um, EU rules still directly affect effective Mm. in Northern Ireland without any vote for anyone in Northern Ireland over those rules. Right. So if the protocol is broken effectively, I mean, can the UK government just say, right, from tomorrow, this is what we're doing and, you know, to hell with the consequences? 
Well, this is this is the really difficult issue. Is um, that would infringe the uh, the strict legal wording of the protocol. However, in international law, there are ways that you can justify not complying with with the wording of commitments that you entered into. There are certain arguments to do with, for example, a prior treaty, um, which normally a subsequent treaty would take precedence over a previous agreement. But in this case, the protocol is expressly subject to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. So there's an argument that we have we are justified in infringing the, the, the protocol in order to respect the prior treaty that it was set up to uh, to protect and preserve. There are there are also legal um, concepts such as the doctrine of necessity, where a state can take action in contravention of an international agreement in order to protect its citizens from from danger uh, and so on. Which again, arguably, that would come into play here. It simply cannot be the case that once a state has entered into an international agreement, however badly that agreement is working out for its citizens, you simply just have to get on and enforce it because it's what the words say. Right. If that was the case, no one would ever enter into an international agreement, well, right. would they? I mean, do you think that this whole situation kind of came about because Brexit had to get done? And if Brexit got done in sort of 98% of, uh, of, of the country and left the other 2% still hanging about, that the, sort of the, the Boris Johnson hope was that, oh, we'll just sort that out later? Well, this was very much, unfortunately, the calculation. You know, the, the the negotiating strategy of Theresa May had left us in a very weak position. The machinations of the um, the, the Ben Burt group. Remember all of that ridiculousness that went on in Parliament, where essentially the um, rebel Ramona MPs took charge of the order paper and passed the Ben Burt Act that made it, was known as the Surrender Act, mm. that effectively made it impossible for the um, for the Johnson government to have a meaningful negotiation, right. our hands were tied behind our backs. So this is why we ended up in, uh, in, a, in a deal that was suboptimal yeah. from the perspective of the Union and, and for Northern Ireland. Now, was it always the intention that we would somehow back out of it? Uh, I actually don't think it was. I think the UK government genuinely thought the protocol could be made to work mm. with good faith and flexibility. Yes, and it probably could have been if the EU weren't so intransigent. But I'm afraid, Victoria, we're out of time. We've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Victoria Houston, ahead of regulatory affairs at the IEA. What will Boris Johnson do? Was he always going to do it? I think he should have done it sooner. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.